From their studio in the Feeding Arizona building in Youngtown, Arizona, it's the Boomer and the Babe Show with Pete Peters and Deborah Brown. Join Pete and Deborah and their guests as they give voice to 78 million baby boomers from coast to coast and border to border. Now here are the Boomer and the Babe, Pete Peters and Deborah Brown. Yes, and welcome to the Boomer the Babe Show. It's Friday, January 25th, 2013. It's 11 o'clock here in Arizona, and it is 10 o'clock on the West Coast, 1 o'clock on the East. Uh, we hope everybody's having a good day so far, regardless of what time it is where you are. Uh, we uh, do this radio program every day, Monday through Friday for the most part, and always done live with broadcast, with podcasts and archives available at Blog Talk dot com slash boomer and babe you can listen at any time that you care to this is produced by the boomer and the babe incorporated and we also have our website which is boomer and the babe.com we invite you to visit sign up uh, for our mailing list and get our regularly scheduled four to six week boomer experience speaks online magazine and i uh, hope you enjoy the uh the writings of some of the people that have been on the radio show and they can be found right there in the uh, in the online magazine another thing i wanted to mention to you is that uh this last wednesday the 23rd we spent the day at uh tpc scottsdale arizona at the the infamous 16th hole and we had a golf pro out there. His name is Aaron Oberholzer, former winner of the Phoenix Open, and a gentleman by the name of, of uh, John Bloom, and they are the co-founders of something called GolfMix.com, and we are associated with them, and they are and they with us on our golf radio show, which is straight down the middle. And we spent a day out there as the groups came by. They had an opportunity to try and to try and beat the pro on a shot to the famous 16th green had a great time and it is all uh captured on tape uh, on golfmix.com on uh, via spreecast and is and the festivities are also captured on uh straight down the middle and that's again at blogtalkradio.com slash boomer and the babe or boomer and babe i'm sorry and uh, take a look at anything that has a reference to the tpc scottsdale and you can hear some of the festivities if you can't watch it on the computer so that being said, we want to get on to today's program. Today we have a guest. His name is Coy Cross. He is author of a book called The Dance. And uh, Coy is going to inform us of uh, some interesting and problematic situations that he faced uh, in dealing with his wife's ovarian cancer and uh, how he has survived it. And uh, welcome to the show, Coy Cross. How are you today? I'm doing well, Pete. Thank you. Well, I'm glad to have you here, and uh, this is going to be, uh, I'm sure, a very interesting show. And before we go much further, I'd like you to give us a little information about yourself. If Deborah were here today, of course uh, she's not, but um, she would ask you for your two-minute movie, which is kind of a little backgrounder on uh, on yourself. And uh, prior to your uh, involvement with uh, your wife's illness. Well, I was born in uh, southeastern Kentucky. I grew up in very fundamentalist churches. Uh, joined the Air Force, came out to California, uh, and and stayed. And retired from the Air Force, uh, went back to school. Uh, I, I tell folks I'm a late bloomer. I, I went back to school at, at uh, 48 uh, to go to grad school. And went back to grad school, and after after finishing, uh, got a job as an Air Force historian, and worked as an Air Force historian until uh, 2007 uh, when I retired. And after retiring, I, I had a book that I wanted to write about uh, a friend, a teacher, a mentor that I'd had uh, oh back in the early 1980s. And so I had been doing research and working on the book uh, when my wife was diagnosed with uh, stage 3 level C ovarian cancer uh, in 2009. Let's talk a couple of things about what you just said. 
I'm interested in knowing, as an Air Force historian, what did you do? Uh, I I worked at Beale Air Force Base, which is the home of the U-2. It's a big re- reconnaissance center. And I wrote about current Air Force, uh, current wing operations, about uh, what was happening in the wing, what was important, um, those sorts of things. And you you chronicled those activities, and they must still be held somewhere uh, in some kind of a some 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 kind of a <laughs> conditions <laughs> in top secret or wherever, right? Well, they they are classified, but uh, it was a different kind of history in that it was current history. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, if I were still working there. Uh, I would I would be working on the 2012 his, history, gotcha. and uh, it, in doing the history, I, I would interview the the commanders who were making the decisions and gather any documents that I thought were important, and all this would be become bound together. There would be a, a copy kept at the wing, a copy uh, kept down at the uh, uh, Air University, uh, which is at, at uh, Maxwell Air Force Base in Alabama. Uh, since I retired, the, the uh, histories are, are electronic now. So the <coughs> excuse me, they're, they're all kept in electronic format. When I was there, it was all hard copy. So what what is the um, uh, I mean, what is the the, the usefulness? Uh, of having these histories? Well, in, in essence, the historian is corporate, the corporate memory. The, the commanders will, will change out about every two years. A new wing commander will come in, and he may or may not have uh, background in reconnaissance, in dealing with the U-2 and, and those kinds of issues. Uh, and so I he would have a resource, or I would have a resource for him uh, about, oh, this is one of the things that's been ongoing. Uh, this, is, this, is, uh, this is why we made the, de- or the commander made the decision to do such and such. So in essence, uh, it's the corporate memory. Gotcha. Okay. And when you say you too, you're talking about the, the plane that was flown by Francis Gary Powers. Is that correct? That's the same one. And is that still in operation today? <laughs> That's still very much in operation. Uh, it, it, that we hear a lot about uh, the unmanned vehicles anymore, the drones and so on, but there's nothing that has come along uh, that has the capability that the U-2 has. Uh, so it's still it's still very much operational and very active. And, and its primary advantage is that it can fly very high. Is that correct? It, it, it flies very high, and it, it can carry uh, sensors that uh, that the other, the smaller uh, unmanned vehicles cannot. And it has a man on board who can make decisions. Right, right. That in and of itself would be an interesting show, quiet. <laughs> I, I, I just I find that very interesting. Now, the next thing I, that you mentioned in in your preamble was that your wife was uh, diagnosed with stage 3 level C. What is stage 3 level C cancer? Well, uh, it means uh, that the cancer has spread beyond the original source. And one of the, one of the things about ovarian cancer that makes it so deadly is the cancer grows on the outside of the ovaries. So it can readily spread. In, in, in most cases, by the time it's diagnosed, it has already spread. Uh, level four uh, is almost always uh, fatal. Uh, there, uh, I don't know the percentages, but the percentages uh, that survive are very small. Uh, and level 3C is the last stage before level 4. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, is it was it determined uh, how long your wife had 
how long it had been that she had contracted the disease to the point at which it was discovered? No. Can they determine that? No. no. Uh, her, the, the type of cancer that she had was fast growing. Hmm. Uh, but uh, there's really no way of knowing how how quickly uh, how quickly it had grown. So, and it it could have been weeks, months. It could have been years, and it's really hard to say. It's it's hard to say. If I if I had to guess, and it would only be a guess, I, I would I would guess it probably, uh, in her case, would have been no more than two years. Mm-hmm. Uh, Maybe less, but I'm I'm not an expert on it, and that's just just a wild guess. Well, how was it that uh, how was it that it was discovered? Well, one of the one of the uh, one of the symptoms uh, her her lower abdomen was uh, she felt like she'd been putting on weight. And couldn't take it off, and most of it centered uh, centered in her lower abdomen, down in her belly, um, and th- there was there was a degree of discomfort. And at first, uh, she thought she'd had years ago she'd had the diverticulitis, and she thought it'd come back. And she went to the doctor, and uh, the doctor agreed that that could be. And so she went on a, a series of uh, antibiotics, uh, but nothing happened. Um, and, and she kind of had a sense that, that there was something wrong, except it, it was at a time when uh, when her mother was had a series of health crises. Uh, just, I mean, she was in the emergency room. She was in ICU, you know, Probably five or six times uh, in the two years before my wife was diagnosed. So it was one of those situations where uh, Carolyn Truth kind of put it off, uh, kind of put her own self off, uh, and, and was responding to what was going on with her mom. And I don't know if it would have made any difference or not. Um, but that's kind of the truth of the situation. Mm-hmm. And ovarian cancer is, uh, honestly, is is really very difficult to to, uh, to catch early. It's one. Of, it seems to be then one of those things that it's uh, all of a sudden here it is, and, and it's yes, at some some level of advancement already by the time it's uh, diagnosed. It, it it is before there are symptoms. Uh, it, it's it's been there for a bit and has probably spread. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> now you had mentioned you had mentioned before that you were uh, uh, writing a book uh, prior to the diagnosis. Is that yes. correct? And yes. Th- and this is the book you were writing. Uh, yes, except uh, it changed. Uh, that was that was where I was going to go. What was the original direction of the book? Well, I'll I'll give you a I'll give you a longer version. Growing up in southeastern Kentucky, going to fundamentalist churches, I was a kid who was always trying to find out how to be the best person I could, and I had a difficult time getting answers. It seemed like you know the older people, the the elders had answers. Uh, but I, I couldn't figure out how to get an answer for myself. In, in my, my classic example, I can remember uh, one, of, one of the tenets of the church I was going to was not to become involved in, in worldly things. And I can remember go, movies were worldly things. I can remember going to a movie with a, a really sweet church-going girlfriend, going to see the movie Lady and the Tramp, and sitting in the movie and feeling guilty, uh, I'm getting this message in my head, you, you know, a worldly thing, a worldly thing. Well, part of my confusion was, if I had been at home, and if I had had a television at that time, I could have sat with that girl on the couch in my home and watched that same movie, and according to the elders, 
it would not have been a worldly thing. Hmm. The theater itself sometimes was used uh, for events like Easter. Churches would use the theater to conduct an, an Easter service. So the, the theater must not have been a worldly thing. But somehow those two uh, combined. And this is the kind of stuff that drove me crazy as a kid. And it, to the extent I was always feeling guilty, and by the time I was about mm, probably 16, I left the church and, and became, I, I tell people, I, I was an antagonistic agnostic. You come try to talk to me about anything spiritual, and I'd have a sharp retort, a zinger back at you. But by the time I was about 40, I, there was an emptiness. There was a, Something was missing. And I started searching around the same kind of churches I used to go to, and I couldn't find answers. I couldn't find anything that really resonated with me. And about 1980, I'd finally, a friend had suggested a unity church, and unity is part of the, the New Thought churches. And so I was going to this unity church in Modesto, and there was a guest speaker. And I, I think most of us have had the experience of being in, in a, a crowded area and looking across and seeing someone catching their eye, and it's like, oh, there you are, someone I've never seen before. The speaker that day was a, wo a woman called Carol Ruth Knox. And Carol Ruth and I, when our eyes met, it was like, oh, there you are. And for the first time, I really heard a message that resonated with me. And so due to circumstances, I ended up, she was from, I was in Modesto, California at the time, and Carol Ruth was a minister over in Walnut Creek, which is in, in the East San Francisco Bay Area. Mm -hmm. uh, within a matter of months, I had moved Very nice to area, Creek. by the way. She's in a very nice area, Walnut Creek. <laughs> it, it, it is. But within a matter of months, I'd moved to, to uh, Walnut Creek and uh, became very close to Carol Ruth. We became dear friends. I served on her board. Um, I, and every Sunday when I would go and she would talk, I would walk out of the church feeling like she had given me something that I could use in my life to make my life better. So after uh, about three, maybe three and a half years, uh, due to, again, my life circumstances changed, and I decided to go back to school. And I, I went back to see if I could get a Ph.D. in history at the University of California at Santa Barbara. And while I was in school, Carol Ruth was killed. She, she was murdered under some bizarre circumstances I won't go into. Uh, but I, I determined right then, okay, Someday, I'm going to write a book about her teachings that were so important to me, and I know they will help other people. Uh, but as we talked about earlier, I finished up school. I went to work for the Air Force as an Air Force historian. And the, the dichotomy between writing about Air Force operations during the day and coming home at night and writing about the spiritual lessons of Carol Ruth Knox, the, the span seemed too great. And so I waited. I said, okay, I'll wait until I retire, uh, and then I'll write the book. So I retired in 2007. By then, I'd gathered all this material. Every I must have 500 of Carol Ruth's Sunday lessons uh, on tape, uh, everything that she'd written, everything I could get a hold of. And I started absolutely inundating myself uh, in Carol Ruth Knox material. And I started writing, and in truth, uh, I was writing as a historian. And historians, uh, if you read academic history, it's very impersonal. Uh, and that's uh, intentionally so, because a historian is not supposed to be in, in interjecting or injecting themselves into the story. Uh, so I'm, I'm writing, and it was really dry. Uh, but about two years into the project, uh, my wife, Carol, was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. And I thought, oh, if those lessons 
have any value at all, they will help me now. Otherwise, what I've been carrying around and valuing so highly, and a phrase I use in the book, is that they're metaphysical BS, that they have no value unless they can help me now. So in essence, the book became about applying the lessons that I had learned uh, more than 25 years ago uh, to my present life situation. And that's what the book is really about. That's a long answer to your question. <laughs> it's fine. It was a great answer, as a matter of fact. Uh, anytime that I can just sit and listen, I love it. Um, so now you've got this connection. Uh, you obviously uh, have have made the connection, and that's how the book changed its direction. Or uh, I don't I don't know. Maybe did it really change direction, or did it just change its functionality? Uh, the, the the book really changed. Uh, it ch- it changed. Uh, it became. I, I mean, this for anyone who reads the book, they will know an awfully lot of, about me and who I am and what's important to me and how I think. It became a very personal book, whereas before it had been very impersonal. It was just and, and a, before a it, it was talking about rather abstractly, about Carol Ruth and her teachings and her lessons. This okay. is is not an not abstract in any way. It, it, it really deals with day-to-day applying those lessons in my daily life. And how they affected you and, how, and what you could use and take from them and so on. Exactly. Okay. Now, what is the title, The Dance, D-H- a-N-C-E. What does that mean? Well, this the, the title I'd, I'd given to the book years ago before I even started writing it. In, in Carolus Knox, uh, her, part of her teachings was seeing life as a, a dance with the divine. And, and one of the quotes that's in the front of the book that I love, uh, in essence, she says, this, she says, it is a, a dance with humanity. Or, I'm sorry, it is a dance which humanity agrees to dance with God, a dance undertaken without promise or hope, yet each person knows that the dance will end in unification. Carol Ruth Knox was from New England, and when she pronounced this dance, she used her New England accent, and it became the dance which she carefully distinguished from recreational dancing. So her suggestion is living our life as if we were dancing with the divine and and clearly knowing who's leading in the dance. So what what is it that is... uh, Have you learned... Let me see, how can I phrase it? Have you learned more from your experience with the teachings of Carol Ruth Knox, or have you learned more from your experience dealing with your wife's uh, disease, or have you learned more from your experience of combining the two? Oh, uh, combining the two, Pete. One of of the first things, uh, having just inundating myself in Carol Ruth's teachings, uh, there's a there's a touch of Buddhism in her teachings, and so it led me to another teacher, a, a man named Adyashante. In one of Adyashante's basic teachings, it sounds so simple: uh, is I let everything be as it is. But this is for me. This is so profound. The day after Carol and I had seen the surgeons, we saw the the surgeons on the Thursday. She was scheduled for surgery the following Tuesday. Uh, My wife was a a marriage and family therapist, and so she spent Friday closing down her practice. And while she was doing that, I I met with a a dear friend, uh, my friend Greg, and Greg and I were sitting in in a coffee shop in Sacramento, 
And I told him then, I says, I have to reach a place of acceptance. I have to let everything be as it is. I have to accept the fact that she has she has a very serious and possibly fatal kind of cancer. And I can't do anything about that. That's totally out of my hands. I can't get caught up in, in feeling sorry for myself or feeling sorry for her. I can't get caught up in questioning God. Why is this happening? Why is this happening to this good woman who, who considers herself doing God's work? All I can do is accept, okay, this this is happening. This is what is. She has this cancer. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm sitting there helpless. What it does mean is I don't accept responsibility for fixing this. What I, what I can do, I can be consciously present with her throughout this entire process. And many times uh, in, the, in the following uh, months, she shared with me, that's exactly what I need from you. So being able to have this awareness uh, from the very beginning was, was profound in my life. And it sounds simple, but it isn't. It's a profound teaching of being able to, to accept this is not something, this is not a punishment for, for something I've done or haven't done. It's not a punishment for something that uh, Carol did or didn't do. It's not a test from God. It is simply, simply something that is in our lives. It is here. There are some profound spiritual lessons. There are some profound spiritual gifts in this. But I have to reach a place of accepting this is what is before I can see those or receive those. So it, it definitely is a combination of, in essence, one, one of the things that, that uh, Unity founders Charles and Myrtle Fillmore said, this is a practical Christianity. And this, to me, was applying these the teachings, applying these principles in a very practical way. Do you... Um... Okay, uh, let me just relate what uh, that I've had and happened to in my situation. Not at all like what you've gone through, but nonetheless, my father was uh, diagnosed Alzheimer's dementia, so on and so forth, and we had to come to the reality that it was going to take him to a place that that, and there was nothing that could be done about it. It just that that is the way it is. And what we determined, and my mother, I think, on some level, but certainly myself, I determined that I was going to be there to make whatever he had as peaceful as possible. Um, is that kind of where you were with your wife? That That's exactly where I was, Pete. And... and in, in the conversation with my friend Greg, this this sounds harsh, but but uh, it's it's the truth. What I shared with him, okay, I can I can be with her consciously present. I can I can get her the best care. I can <coughs> excuse me. I can do all this stuff, but how it turns out is none of my business. I don't have control over that. And if I get caught up in how it's going to turn out. Then again, I lose focus. I lose focus on what I what I can do. So it, it's it's coming to that place of acceptance. Uh, of I, I'll I'll be there. I'll do what I can do. But in truth, uh, I can't control how it turns out. And if if that's my if that's my focus, then my focus is not being here, being here right now, being present right now being able to respond and do what I can right now. So that's exactly the kind of uh, acceptance that I'm talking about. 
Well, I I I I do understand it because there there is there there comes a point and 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 people will say that boy that you know what's wrong with you you know you're that's like as you said harsh cruel almost uh you know you're you're self-centered uh any number of things but there there comes a point when you're doing what you can do to make them as comfortable as they can be, and you can be as helpful as you can be, but beyond that, there is nothing else. And by the fact that you're there with those folks in that dilemma and being there for the comfort and so on and so forth and hopefully the ease, uh, some of their concerns, uh, that is the best you can do. And that that, that it, is indeed. And what I what I promised Carol was... I will be here to hold your hand all the way through this, no matter how it turns out. Uh, and, well, and right. I did. Yeah. Well, and and that's and that's something to certainly uh, be proud of the fact that you made your promise, kept your promise. Uh, that's yes. great. That's great. Uh, and I'm sure it helps you deal with. Uh, everything that uh, that happened down the road, uh, I know I'm having I'm having some of the same issues myself right now. Again, as we speak, only now with my mother, who's 90 years old, uh, and and it's I just go well, you know, um, uh, there's only so much I could do. <laughs> I, there, there's there's nothing that can be done here other than uh, hopefully keep her as. Uh, as calm and relaxed and uh, as as I possibly can, uh, and to help her through whatever it is, uh, and and not have and not my get myself so, uh, and this is somewhat self-serving possibly. Some people will think it is, but not get let myself get so self-centered and why is it me and what about I can't talk about it. I can't worry about that. I mean, it is what it is. It. it it's sort of like Popeye the Sailor Man. I am what I am. And that's all that I am. It is yeah. what it is. That's all that it is. And uh, that, there's somebody else pulling these strings, not me. That, that's exactly true, Pete. One one of the one of the wonderful uh, lines for, from my friend Carol Ruth Knox. She says, "You know, we get the idea that if we do everything right, if we do, you, you know, just." absolutely the right thing, that somehow God will let us be in charge for a while. She says, but that's not how it works. <laughs> Never in and, charge. And, and one of the things I w would uh, suggest to people, what, what, okay, one of the things I've discovered, men are not prepared to be caregivers. I mean, this has been a role that women have done for millennia. But it's a new role for men. As we live longer, more and more men are going to find themselves in that position. Yep. But as men, it's really difficult to ask for help to take care of ourselves. And I've seen people who are in the role of caregiver who try to be everything, who try to do everything themselves, who will, if if their their loved one is in the hospital, will sleep on the floor, sleep in a chair, stay there all the time, uh, with the idea that oh, I I have to be here to take care of him. Well, the old line goes, it may be a marathon and not a sprint. And mm -hmm. so some of these things go on for years and years and years. Right. And if you're going to be effective as a caregiver, you have to take care of yourself. Uh, and as men, it, it's like, I'm going to charge ahead. I can do this. This is mine to do, uh, and I don't need anybody's help doing it. And asking for help is a sign of weakness. Well, not asking for help is, is a sign of being hung up in your own ego. If you wow. really want to help the person that you're the caregiver for, you will ask for the help that you need. 
And one of the things that I've realized, one of the greatest joys that we get as as human beings is being able to help someone else. And by selfishly not asking for help, you're really depriving someone else of the joy of helping you. And I can guarantee you, I won't go into details right now, but I, I've had the experience of trying to do everything myself uh, as a much younger man than I am now. And at the end of about a year, I was so absolutely spent uh, physically and emotionally that I couldn't be the caregiver anymore. I ended up walking away from the situation and have carried that with me for a long time. So what I'm suggesting to you, one of the things that, that with being with my wife, Carol, I, there are things that only I could do and give her, but there are other things that other people could do. And one, one of the classic examples was uh, I got to the place, I, I'd been doing nearly everything, and I got to the place uh, of wanting to hire a housekeeper. Um, and I talked to my wife about it, and it, it, I think she's typical. Many women do not like the idea of another woman coming in and cleaning her house. It's like, I can do this. Well, in our situation, Carol says, well, I don't know. You, you know I, I, and I said, sweetheart, this is not about you. This is about me. I can't do everything. I need to have some help, and we can afford it, and so... I'm going to hire somebody to do the house cleaning. And she said, oh, okay. And so I did. Uh, so the caregiver, if they get hung up and feeling totally responsible, and I, I, th I think, again, as I said, men are, it's especially difficult to ask for help. But there are friends around. Uh, many of the, the treatment centers have have volunteers around, they have help available, uh, they, they have uh, counseling available, they have support groups available. <coughs> there, there's a group in Sacramento, there are women who, who will clean your home for free if, if you have someone who's uh, in treatment. Churches, friends, family, all these people are, are available to help. And if you really want to do the best job as a caregiver, get some help, uh, take care of yourself, uh, have somebody come in and sit with, with with your loved one and go to a movie or go uh, find a friend to talk to or go see a, a grief counselor to talk to. In uh, not doing so, from my perspective, and again, it may sound harsh, but not go, doing so is it is egotistical and selfish. If you really care, then get some help and take care of yourself, too. Well, so I'll it, get off my soapbox now. No, that's okay. It's, 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 all, it's all good advice. Uh, I, can, I, I summarize the whole thing by saying you have to know what you don't know. Uh, and that's where you need to have somebody get involved and, and excuse me, to help. Because if you don't, uh, you will drive yourself crazy. I, I, I know for a fact, and I've seen it firsthand right in my family, and that's what prompted Deborah and I to move from San Diego, California, to Arizona when my father was starting to make his drastic slide, uh, and my mother had been his primary and sole caregiver and uh, we came here for the Christmas holiday, as we always did, and I looked at my mother, and she looked like in the period of a year, in a period of years, she had aged 15. And I went, this is not working. So we made arrangements to move here to give her some kind of respite and some kind of a hand with regard to, uh, regard to him. And mm -hmm. any number of things happened along the way, but then eventually we... Uh, I, I graduated, so to speak, into becoming the 
a primary caregiver was certainly with her knowledge and acquiescence and agreement to everything that was decided to do, but it, but it relieved her of some of those decisions <clears throat> uh, as far as how much how much more care he was going to get, what yeah. were we going to do, so on and so forth. And uh, we taught, we consulted the medical practitioners. We consulted um, his 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 living will. Uh, we knew what he wanted, and we just decided that you know what, doctor, this is what the order is, and it's his order. And uh, we yep. just made we made sure we were made sure that it was that it was followed. And now I'm in the same situation with my mother, but she also has her living will, and she has her information. And when she gets uh, when she moves on to a particular point in time uh, with uh, with the disease, I will say to the doctor, doctor. This is what we do, and this is her order. Uh, yeah. And I'm relieved of it. Thankfully, I am relieved of it. Uh, and I can accept it, and I can say, no, what's they both, what they both wanted. So it, it's 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 nice to know what you don't know. It's nice to know what you need to know, and it's even nicer if people know what they want to have you know. And you can just sit there and, and very calmly and uh, with assurance that you're doing the right thing, just make sure that it gets executed, that the that the, uh, that the wishes get executed. You, you know, uh, I, I would like to emphasize what, what you just said about your parents having their wishes known and having them written down. I mean, that takes a tremendous, a tremendous responsibility off the children. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the surviving spouse. Exactly, exactly. And this is something some folks are, are reluctant to do, reluctant to talk about. But my goodness, you can save the people you love so much heartache by doing that simple thing, by creating a, a living will. This, mm-hmm. this, this is what I want. This is how I want to be taken care of. Uh, the, these are my wishes. Um, yeah, and I and I and I and I jokingly say this, but I'm <laughs> I'm really serious when I say I've already made arrangements that when whenever I go, somebody's going to come and pick me up. They're going to harvest whatever they need to harvest for scientific reasons, and uh, they uh, the agreement is that they cremate the remains and give them back to Deborah. And I told Deborah, take them over, to, take them up on a mountaintop and scatter them in the desert, then take them over to Torrey Pines and sc- scatter them on the golf course right over Black Beach where all the naked people bathe. Uh, I, I could think of no better way than to, to face eternity than uh, being down there <laughs> watching a bunch of naked people run around. <laughs> I might get sick of it after a while. But, I mean, I said, what the heck? You know what? At, at that point, what difference does it make? It's just my physical remains. <laughs> my, yes. my spiritual remains have gone on somewhere else anyhow, hopefully to a place that I'm enjoying. <laughs> exactly. So, exactly. So, so at any rate, let's. Uh, I'm looking at the clock here, and we're getting by. Jesus, this hour's going by quickly. Um, what do you consider some of the most important lessons that, uh, that you could share with other people through this process? Uh, one of the things that that, uh, that we just talked about, taking care of yourself. Sure. But one of the, the greatest gifts that came out of this for me, uh, and, and I, I will uh I, I will uh, tell your audience that, that my wife made her transition in May of this past year. Uh, but being able to come to a place of acceptance uh, from the very beginning and, and helping her come to a place of acceptance, uh, this, this, is, this is what is. We, our, our relationship, which had from my perspective, from her perspective, uh, that had been one of the strongest of any couples we knew, became even deeper. I came, we came, more to a place of unconditional love than I've ever experienced, with the possible exception of the first time I saw and held my children and grandchildren. I, I mean, unconditional love. And this is a gift that came out of this time that if we had not been at a place of acceptance, 
we could not have realized if we'd been so hung up in, oh, why is this ha- happening to us? And one of the, the extraordinary things that happened, uh, she collapsed at home. Uh, we ended up calling 911. Uh, they took her to one hospital. Uh, I was not, this is not the place where she had been before, where she felt most comfortable. And so I spent about three days uh, fighting the bureaucracies and the doctors and so on to get her moved. Uh, we got her moved, and from the moment that she was into the other hospital, she was absolutely surrounded by love. And to the extent that I had doctors and nurses tell me, I'm a better doctor, I'm a better nurse for having served her, for, from being around her and your family. I had the emergency room doctor, or I'm sorry, I had the ICU doctor call me at home a couple of weeks later just to check to see how the family was doing and to reiterate again how profoundly the love that surrounded my wife affected them. And so it was it was a gift to me, it was a gift to our family, it was a gift to everybody around her. And it was a gift that came out of being accepting. This is what is. We will do whatever we can, but realize that we're not in charge. And that we, do, However this turns out, all we can do is bring our best self to this. And then how it turns out, again, is none of my business. I have no control over that. What I do have some control over is how I show up. So that, I, I again, will emphasize to folks, uh, you if you can reach a place of acceptance, uh, one of the unique teachings is God is everywhere present. And if, and I believe that is absolutely true. And if that is true, then even in these most difficult situations, whether you can see it or not at the time, God is involved in that too. And so if you can come to this place, and I think I was fortunate in that I'd started writing this book a couple of years before, was absolutely inundating myself were these teachings. And so it was it was easier for me from that perspective to come to this place of acceptance. Uh, but if, if you can do that, you can then realize some of the tremendous gifts that comes out of being in these kinds of situations. <coughs> I, I, I was truly able to come to a place of feeling that it was a privilege to be able to be there and be with Carol as she was going through this most difficult time. Well, I I think that what some people don't um, understand or maybe they don't think of it, uh, maybe they don't uh, want to think about it, uh, which may be one of the most frequently discovered things i guess people just don't want to think about it they they don't want yeah. to think about it because they don't want to they don't want to talk about their prearrangements either uh yeah. for the reason that they don't want to think about it but the fact in my opinion is that acceptance is not a sign of not caring and, oh and, no <laughs> and 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 the, and some people think well he just accepted that pretty he must not have cared about it uh, well oh, no. not, nothing could be possibly further from the truth Nothing could be further from the truth. And what I would say, I adore this woman. And what I would say, but coming to a place of acceptance helped me to realize what I could do and what was beyond my control. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it allowed me to be with her, be consciously present with her. And by that I mean I'm not just sitting there. I am tuned into her. 
with what's going on with her. I can be there for her so that she can share uh, the fears uh, that she's having. Uh, she knows that I am, I am capable of listening, of hearing really at a deeper level. Uh, one of the terms that, that, that I use is listening with intention. And by this, it means listening beyond the words, listening to the emotions, listening to, uh, to the reactions, looking at someone and, and seeing what they're really saying, uh, which may not be translated into the words, but seeing behind the words. Being consciously present with her, I was able to do that with her. We reached a, a connection that was that I had never experienced before in my life, and that came from acceptance. That doesn't mean giving up. That means accepting what is going on right now. And from that position, evaluating what do I, what can I do, what do I need to do. Uh, to be present with this right now. I'm going to suggest oh. I'm I'm going to su- suggest Coy that it also gave her peace and, and gave her and gave her uh um the knowledge uh, and, and and well I'll go back to the word peace I guess and the calmness to know that you through all of this were going to be okay. I'm going to be okay, and I'm going to be there with her. Mm-hmm. She came to a place of acceptance, too. Mm-hmm. And our agreement was she did not want to be kept alive artificially. Right. Uh, so when she collapsed, she collapsed from uh, from blood clots, which were a result of the chemo. So blood clots in, into her lungs, uh, and the doc, doctor said, in essence, it's almost like her lungs had exploded. Mm-hmm. And, and so the treatment at first, they had her on a, a an assisted breathing machine, called BiPAP, and I, I don't know what that acronym stands for, but she's on this machine that's helping her breathe. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, and she was she was on it for... Uh, probably four or five days. And so uh, I'm sitting with her in ICU, and she's getting agitated. Uh, But I couldn't hear what she was saying because the machine was kind of noisy. And so uh, I called the nurse. The nurse came in, took took the, the mask off, and Carol said to me, take the mask off. Take the mask off. And I said, you know what that means? And she said, yes. So I called the nurse, and I said, take the mask off and leave it off. And and she was at peace. Yeah. So I, I being at, at a place of acceptance also helps her be at a place of acceptance. It, it, it's amazing that you just related that part of the story because uh, I have learned in in watching my father's passing that uh, I think in many and possibly in 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 most cases, but I don't know. I've I've not been with too many people as they've passed, but uh, uh, I can remember now my father was in a situation where he wasn't eating and he, he had just kind of said to himself that this was it and he was we moved him into a hospice and and I was giving him the only way he could get any kind of moisture in his mouth was uh if I would dip a straw into a glass of water and hold it up to his mouth and then release the water you know once it was uh in his uh, under his lips and he moved my the last time I'll never forget it he he had not spoken he had not said much to anybody and he moved my hand away and he very peacefully said, enough. Hmm. 
That's all he said was enough. And I said, yep. okay, you got it. Yep. It's enough, and we're done, and we're going to just sit here with you. And yep. that's exactly, and that's exactly the way it happened. And and I and I go, wow, really nice. And I and I was there, and I watched, literally watched him take his last breath. And I went, this was nice. This was peaceful. And um, no struggle, no nothing. He just one last big breath and let it all out, and he was gone. And yeah. it was something to behold. Believe me, it was something to behold. And I just went, wow, I was very honored to be there for that. And, exactly. And exactly. that's the way I felt. That's the way I felt. Yeah. Well, Coy, I totally all of understand, this, Pete. <laughs> yeah, I, I knew you would. Uh, all of this conversation, this great conversation, meaningful conversation we've had, uh, I still want to give you the opportunity to give your shameless self-promotion. And let's let people know where they can get this book and read about your experiences and hopefully uh, gain something from it. And uh, maybe they will help them when they're in their uh, some of their darkest times as well. So why don't you go ahead and give people that information. There is a website at thedance.com, and that's T-H-E-D-H-A-N-C-E.com. Uh, I have a blog set up there uh, and some of the ongoing realizations that I have that I, I, I post on there. Uh, and it, this has been one of the most tremendous learning experiences of my life. So I try to share from that level. Uh, you can click on there. Uh, there's a place to buy the book. Uh, the publisher is Pono Press. And it's K-O-H-O. P-O-N-O Press. Uh, they have a website. You can buy the book there, or you can buy the book through Amazon. And, uh, yeah, I – the reason that, that uh, I wrote the book, uh, the reason that, that uh, I'm doing this interview is with the thought that some of the things that I've learned I think can be very helpful to people who are going through similar circumstances. Um and I, I would, I would recommend, I would recommend the book to you. And there, there will be a follow-up book. This this particular book, The Dance, ends with my wife in remission. Uh, and I think I owe people a, a, another book to take the process all the way out through the end. As I said, she did pass this uh, past May, um, and I think people need to realize you do everything that you know how to do. You do the very best you can. And as my friend Carol Ruth said, uh, but God still doesn't let you be in charge. You don't have control on how it turns out. Uh, And if you will release the idea that you need to control how it turns out, uh, there's some wonderful, wonderful gifts that will come to you from this entire experience. Well, I can believe that. Uh, I've uh, learned a little of that myself on a first-hand basis. So I, I, I congratulate you on writing the book, uh, and best of uh, best of luck in everything else that you do from this point forward. And let me know when that next book comes out, would you? I will do that, Pete. All right, and, and thanks for thanks for the time. I, I I appreciate it a lot. Well, thank you for being here. I appreciate that as well. Take care and uh, and enjoy the rest of your weekend. Thank you. Take care now. Bye. We've been talking to Mr. Coy Cross, author of the book called The Dance, D-H-A-N-C-E. You can get him on Amazon. You could probably Google him. Uh, any number of ways that you can find Mr. Cross. And uh, it sounds like a very moving book, but also a very uh, book where lessons can be learned uh, with regard to life and the life cycle. So uh, hopefully people will take a look at this, especially if they're finding themselves in situations that they're not familiar with and how to deal, possibly deal with uh, loss or traumatic situations. Thanks again for listening. Have a great weekend, everybody. We will be back again next week with more programming. We hope you'll enjoy uh, that as well. I hope you'll join us at that time. So with that, we'll say goodbye. Have a great weekend, and we'll talk to you again soon. Take care.
Bootman Debate Show, where we bring interesting conversations to the world. Be sure to follow us on Twitter, where we tweet as Boomer and Babe, and on Facebook as Pete Peters 47. As always, you can friend us on Blog Talk Radio or sign up for our newsletter at boomerandthebabe.com. Email us at host at boomerandthebabe.com with any of your comments. Remember, at 50, you're just getting started. 